This is an RNZ podcast. You say you provided diagrams of the mobile biological trucks. Yes. You were making that up. Yes. And also, you constructed a model of these trucks. Again, you made that up. That was Peter Taylor back in 2012 interviewing Rafid Almed Alwan Al-Janabi, codenamed Curveball, who was a crucial source on supposed weapons of mass destruction, which helped make the US case for invading Iraq nine years earlier. Now, Curveball admitted to Peter Taylor his intelligence was in fact a lie. But Peter Taylor cut his teeth on reporting terrorism and espionage in one single unresolved conflict that was, for him, far closer to home. And this year is the centenary of partition, the legislation that divided the island into two separate states in 1921, separated by a border. For the past 50 years, Peter Taylor has been covering the story of Ireland's last 100 years divided into north and south. And this year, he looked back on all of that in a remarkable film for the BBC called simply Ireland After Partition, which begins like this. So why is an Englishman still looking at the Irish question don't say I never bought you anything, Peter. What do I owe you? You owe me nothing. After he's been studying it, following it, reporting it for 50 years. Well, that's a good question, and the first one I put to Peter Taylor. It started with the awful day that became known as Bloody Sunday, at the end of January 1972. British paratroopers, my paratroopers, me being a Brit, shot dead 13 innocent Catholic civil rights marchers. None of them were armed. Uh, All of them were innocent. I knew nothing about Ireland before I went over to cover Bloody Sunday. Uh, I didn't really understand why there were two bits to the island, why it had been partitioned, how it had been partitioned, and what the impact of it was. And I will never forget this sort of eerie silence. There was nobody around. It was quite early in the morning, and there was blood still fresh on the ground. Uh, And then I went round knocking on doors with considerable trepidation, me being a Brit. People, far from slamming the door in my face or being abusive, uh, invited me in and were were delighted, they told me, that I'd taken the trouble as, as an Englishman to actually ask them what had happened because they didn't trust the British media. Here am I, a young journalist, setting foot in any part of Ireland for the first time, knowing nothing about the history, nothing, knowing nothing about why this had happened. And I remember saying to myself, you know, Peter, start trying to find out. And I spent the next 50 years doing just that, trying to find out and make sense, and also critically trying to explain to an audience, a British audience, primarily an English audience, that really didn't want to know about Northern Ireland. So, Peter, now that you're at a point where you can look back over 50 years of covering the story, you know, half of the time of Ireland under partition, which, which, as you point out in the film, was actually meant to be a temporary measure and now still unresolved, what is the value of having that 50-year uh, body of work? You know, If you'd given up after 20 years, would you regret it now? I, I think I would have done. There was one occasion in 1976 when I seriously considered stopping. I interviewed a, a prison officer. Uh, in the Mays prison, this is 1976. He was the secretary of the Prison Officers Association. He was called Desmond Irvine, a lovely, lovely man. And he was willing to be interviewed because he was prepared to say that he could understand why um, IRA prisoners 
wanted political status. There was a protest because the government regarded them as criminals. They said, we're not criminals, we are prisoners of war. On that issue, he said, I can understand why they feel the way that they do. Before he did the interview, I made sure, I said, Desmond, are you sure you want to do this? You're happy? He said, yes, I think it's important that, that, that I do it. I suppose one could say that a person who believes sincerely in what he is doing and is prepared to suffer for it, that there must be a certain measure of respect which you give to him. He gave a brilliant interview for which he was roundly applauded and applauded by many of his fellow prison officers too. And then the IRA shot him dead, murdered him about two weeks after the interview. You even went to his funeral, didn't you, Peter? I went to his funeral. I was absolutely mortified. I couldn't believe it. And, and I went to the IRA or to Sinn Féin and said, he was actually understanding what you were doing. And then you go and shoot him dead? You know, what, what are you about? You know, I just can't understand that. And they said uh, he was shot, not because of the interview. He was shot because he was secretary of the Prison Officers Association. After his, his killing, uh, I received a phone call from a journalist in Belfast who said, uh, Peter, I want to know how it feels to have blood on your hands. And I was, I thought, you know, that's it. You know, I've got too close, too involved. I've had enough. You must have been rather exposed, though, yourself, because not only are you talking to some very dangerous people, uh, you know, forming relationships with terrorists, who in some of your films are admitting to murders. Maybe there were things the authorities already knew about, but um, those are extraordinary admissions to get face-to-face on camera and on the record. You've got guns. Yes. And you're prepared to use them. True. And you have used them. Yes. Were you prepared to kill? Without question. You knew what you were letting yourself in for? Without question. With your eyes wide open? Totally. My decision. And made by me and me alone. But you yourself were reporting on things like security policy, you know, those emergency powers you mentioned, even dealing with, you know, the individuals who were uh, in later years in secret trying to broker peace deals and and establish contacts between the different parties. Uh, This must have exposed you to personal risk yourself as well as, you know, the people you were talking to like Desmond Irvin. I was talking to all sides. I was talking to the IRA, to the provost. I was talking to loyalists, to the UDA, the UBF. I was talking to army intelligence. I was talking to police, RUC, special branch. And I was also talking to uh, members of the intelligence services. When asked what I was prepared to discuss, I said, I'm prepared to discuss anything you like. Including structures of withdrawal from Ireland. Whatever that may mean. After all, you have to bear in mind that we're dealing with Irishmen who have a wonderful facility for language and subtlety, um, marvellous poets and lawyers. So everything was open for discussion. The worry was the so-called terrorist on both sides, both Republican and loyalist, might think that I was actually working for the intelligence services. And if they thought that, then that was potentially very dangerous. Uh, And I occasionally had dreams about me being arrested and interrogated by the IRA or loyalists. Uh, I remember being warned by David Ovi, who was one of the most um, articulate, intelligent 
justifiers of loyalist extremism or the loyalist case. He said, Peter, be careful, you know, what you do and what you say, because there are people on our side, i.e., you know, the loyalist paramilitary side, who suspect that you're working for MI5 because they can't understand how you have such contacts unless you're actually working for them. Around about the same time, I was in, in Derry, London Derry, and a young Republican, probably IRA still at the time, uh, took me to one side and he said, Peter, there are people on our side who suspect that you're working for MI5. Now, when people on both sides think, suspect you're working for the intelligence services, that's quite chilling because I've been doing it for a long time. And in the end, the people you know, that I interviewed, the people uh, that I made films around and about could always judge my uh, you know, integrity, to use a slightly pompous word, by what they saw on screen. They thought I had been fair. So it was that which was my, my shield and defender, if you like. I walked a very fine line most of the 50 years, and although I, I wobbled a bit, I actually never fell off. Back in 1970s, you followed two groups of children, Catholic children and Protestant children, mm-hmm. who were taken by a group to go on holiday time together out of their environment in a way they never could when they were in it in Belfast. Will you see the other children of the other religion when you go back to Belfast? No, not at all. Be a, when I go home, it'll be the last time we'll see them. I'd love to stay here, but I can't, so I must go back and face it all. Also, a bus driver from Hull in England and his wife, mm. who, uh, like, like I guess yourself, knew very little about Northern Ireland or what the problem was all about beyond snippets on TV news. Tommy Edmonds, the bus driver, was me, effectively. It was me taking him to Belfast and, and his lovely wife, Doris, and it was a learning experience for him. And I say in the film, it was a learning experience for me. Has your week in Belfast made you change your mind about the situation, Tom? Completely. I couldn't desert these people. You'd have to be a very callous man, more callous than I could be, I'm afraid, to desert these, to take the army away and absolutely leave them to it. Absolute reversal of opinion towards the other link. Those films, which were both made in 1972, almost 50 years ago, 50 years ago next year, uh, had a tremendous impact on the audience. The children were astonishing and astonishingly mature and very moving six Catholic and six uh, Protestant children on holiday to Wales, to Butlin's holiday camp. And I thought it'd be a good idea to film them in their home environment and see once outside of Northern Ireland if they began to do something they'd never done before, which is talk to members of the other side. One of the young boys I interviewed called uh, Joe Joseph, he reminded me of me. Do you have any Protestant friends? No. It would be too dangerous having Protestant friends. You couldn't play with them or do anything. I went to Belfast to try and find some of these children. There wasn't really enough there to make a film about it, but, but one of them... I got a, a WhatsApp from Joe, who was from the Republican family, and he said he'd been able to keep out of jail, not get involved, he said, with the IRA, because his hobby was pigeon fancying. 
pigeon comp- pigeon flying apparently is is a non-sectarian <laughs> uh, hobby unlike sports and and other uh, activities he'd been able to keep out of trouble thanks to his pigeons well it's just a coincidence peter but um, northern ireland's part of my family history it's where my mother's from and i was about the same age as joe i was 11 when i first went there i'd never been out of new zealand before and yeah i found Belfast a bit of a shock but just because it was so sort of alien but I mean thinking about that people do form an impression of the place depending on the first time they visit and I'm thinking another person who tried to explain some of this was I think he's a Canadian journalist Michael Ignatiev and he did a series on nationalism called uh, Blood and Belonging and one is seen in that that sticks with me as he's watching people in a loyalist neighbourhood paint the curbstones red, white and blue in a repeating pattern down. And he's asking them, so why, why, are you, uh, why are you doing this? And, uh, you know, one of them just looks at him and like he's an idiot and says, well, because we're British. And he says, yes, but uh, I spend a great deal of time in the United Kingdom and I've never seen anybody painting the curbstone like that. And, of course, uh, you know, you can see what he's doing. He's bringing that outside a sort of naive perspective. But do you lose that when you have been so deep in the story must have been very difficult to try and pitch things at an audience when you had the deep understanding that they don't. I think there are two things, Colin. One is the films I was making, which were reflecting situations on the ground at the time, like on security policy, broadcasting events which were making news and, and headlines, was fairly straightforward because the audience knew why it was important. But what I tried to do in those films was to explain, you know, what, how and why these things were happening, like police interrogation uh, in the late 1970s when IRA suspects and loyalist suspects too were being uh, basically beaten, abused by RUC detectives to get them to sign confessions, which would be the basis for putting them in jail. But when I came to make longer films and big series like Provos and then Loyalist and then Brits looking at our side of the uh, equation, you know, I, I had the opportunity to sort of sit back and explain is that the reaction was uh, from many people, thank you for doing it. You know, for the first time, we begin to understand what it was all about. And you can only engage people if they understand and empathise with what the problem is and why it is. Well, that's what I tried to do, both with the contemporary reporting and in the big series uh, and longer programmes that I did, like My Journey Through the Troubles, which was the precursor of Ireland after partition. Uh, and I think that's that's what the 50 years has enabled me to do through to, uh, which I've spent a lot of time you know, unravelling, investigating, how the British came over many, many, over decades to persuade the IRA finally to give up the so-called armed struggle and concentrate on politics. An historic agreement for peace in Northern Ireland has been reached within the past few minutes. Is what an astonishing story it is, and what a, what a triumph of political initiative and political determination to go from Bloody Sunday and internment through to the Good Friday Agreement. 
you also, because you're an expert in terrorism, uh, when after 9-11, looking at Al-Qaeda and intelligence gathering and, and all of that, in fact, the last time you were on Radio New Zealand National um, was when you'd spoken to that source curveball who's discredited in intelligence, proved to be you know so, yes, such yes. a problem. Just finally, we here in New Zealand, we had no experience of, of terrorism, at least not our post-colonial modern times, if you like, but uh, 2019, March 15th, we had those mosque attacks, just become such a landmark in our country now. But do, do we need, as a media, perhaps need to have a focus a bit like yours, dedicated journalists who, who know this stuff, nasty as it is to bury yourself in as a career. We actually need people dedicated to it and a media prepared to explore it. I think it's really important that that happens. I have you know, many colleagues who are you know, equally expert in the Irish field and who've done you know, remarkable work. It's not just me. Many other colleagues who work in the field of terrorism, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and uh, Islamist extremism, Specialist journalism requires the journalists to have a deep understanding, you know, met some of the participants, uh, talk to them, analyze them, and then to reflect what they think of the quote's enemy. In other words, you know, what we are up against or what you in New Zealand are up against after the, the dreadful mosque attack attacks. You know, it's such a sensitive issue, and it's not straightforward. The, the viewers, the readers, your listeners may well have you know, an understandably prejudiced view about the enemy, like we had for years and years and years about the IRA, and yet, and yet, finally, the IRA were brought to the negotiating table, encouraged by the intelligence services, from utter despair and mayhem, epitomised by Bloody Sunday and what followed when I first set foot in Northern Ireland in 1972 to where we are today. And there is, there is a piece. It's not a perfect piece. There's still a threat from uh, dissident groups. Why, you know, why am I still doing it? Why am I still covering Ireland after all these years? And I say because the Irish question has still not been resolved, and that remains the case. That was Peter Taylor, who spent half a century covering conflict and terrorism in Northern Ireland and the search for peace there. He's raided his own remarkable archive for Ireland After Partition, a recent documentary for the BBC to mark the centenary this year of the partition of Ireland back in 1921. Now there's more from him in the online version of this story on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Peter Taylor, 50 Years Focused on a 100-Year Conflict.